you tell me what happened? Don't worry, everybody. The game will find you. Welcome to Westworld The Recapables, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, David Shoemaker. Today we're talking season two, episode one, Journey in Tonight. We're doing this before airing without the benefit of subtitles or Reddit groupthink or a safety net. In this episode, we get Dolores on a rampage, Bernard in quiet mode, Maeve doing search and rescue, the man in black back on his horse, and a two weeks later timeline that's trying to make sense of everything that happened between then and now. I am joined for my laboratory debriefing this week by none other than Chris Ryan, and as always, the cheery welcome wagon himself, Danny Heifetz. How are you doing, Chris? I don't know why I had to completely strip to do this podcast, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get into this season with you. What? What? A season opener. Um, let's just get right into it. Chris, what is your tweet length review of Journey Into Night? Everything is code here. Yeah. That's it? So I'm taking from Robert Ford, young Robert Ford. Little Robert. Uh, talking to the man in black about the new nature of the game, which I'm sure we're going to get into at length. But not only is everything is code here an, an allusion to the programming that goes on for a lot of the, the hosts and this entire world that we're living in. Absolutely. But also for the way we interpret the show, which is this sort of symbolical guesswork that goes into trying to figure out what this show is not only about, but where this show is going. There, there, Other than Game of Thrones, there's no other show that we spend this much detective time trying to figure out what the mystery is. No, I mean, True Detective season one, yeah. I think, sort yeah. of set the model, and now we're just all, all in on this show. Yeah. It's, and they give us a lot to chew on. I mean, it's very clear, we'll get into this more, that... That they that you know Nolan and Joy learned a lot from the first season and are kind of throwing it back in our faces in right a lot now. of different ways too. Yeah. That's a good point. All right, that's what you think happened, Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, some people like to focus on the ugliness in this world. I prefer to focus on the beauty. <laughs> All right, uh, thanks, robot. Uh, that's what you guys think happened. Now here's everything that happened. We begin or awaken with Dolores and Bernard Arnold in a debriefing. But who's debriefing who? Bernardold has a dream that he says doesn't mean anything except, well, check back on that later. Flash forward to timeline number two, where Bernard is waking up on a beach where Betty Gabriel from Get Out has a gun and leads him to besuited Viking Carl Strand, who's in charge now, and who leads him past masked host executions to a Native American host whose mind he reads and therein sees Dolores killing said host. I told you, friend. Not all of us deserve to make it to the valley beyond. Then... My God, that's Scott Joplin's music, literally. It's the entertainer. And we flash back to timeline number three. Dolores massacring folks like a total badass or a bad person. She and Teddy and some cronies set some Delos peeps up for hanging, but she shuffles through her personalities and leaves them alive. Later in the show, Teddy has reservations about her revolution, and Dolores tells him that in the end, it's going to be just the two of them. It ends with you and me. Meanwhile, Maeve bails out Sizemore from a host attack, and they go to the control room where they realize everything's fucked. Maeve tracks down her daughter, despite Sizemore's philosophical qualms, and then there's a shootout with some guards in the hallway. They find Hector, and he and Maeve kiss like only true robot lovers can kiss. Back in the lab, they make Lee strip naked, and go ahead and insert your Sizemore puns here. Strip. Right now, in front of... Yes. Now. 
The man in black, or William, which I can't quite bring myself to call him, gets out from under some corpses and heads to his cabin where he fights off some hosts and talks to his horse and cleans himself up. In full man in black, Gary ventures out into Westworld where young Robert appears and tells him there's a new game and finally this one's for him. And he kills young Robert because he's a jerk. Guess I don't need you anymore, Robert. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of last episode, Bernard and Charlotte and some other Delos Galagoers are hiding from the rampaging hosts. They escape a barn, they find a dune buggy, and they get ambushed. Bernard and Charlotte survive and find a super secret lab where drone hosts are doing work. Charlotte tries to get the outside world to send help, to no avail, while Bernard logs into the mesh network to find Peter Abernathy and his internal hard drive. Bernard is crashing, in the computer sense, and shoots up some host brain fluid to keep going. Um, almost... Something wrong, Bernard? Back in the present, Strand, Bernard, and company find Ford's corpse. Then they find a dead tiger, which shouldn't be there. And then the smoke monster appears. Sorry, wrong show. Then they find a giant sea that shouldn't be there either, which is filled with the bodies of all the hosts, including, I think, Teddy. And Bernard, who dreamed all this at the start of the show, says, I killed them. That's everything that happened in Westworld Season 2, Episode 1, Journey into Night. Let's just get into the big idea. This episode is very, very different from the last season uh, in a lot of ways. But one of the big ways is we're already just flip-flopping protagonists and villains. All of our allegiances are confused. I was very resistant to this question when Zach Mack asked it yesterday, but I think it's a good way to get into the show. Who are we supposed to be rooting for? It becomes absolutely apparent within, I guess, 25 seconds of her first appearance on screen that Maeve is the star and the hero of this show. Mm -hmm. Tandy Newton is the star. Maeve is the main character. She is the most up for grabs in terms of her allegiances. She has the most relatable hero's arc. She is trying to rescue her child, even if that child is a... A, a, just a piece of narrative that's been inserted into her into her cerebral cortex mm-hmm. or a hard drive or however you want to look at it. But the way in which they have calibrated her character, who was obviously basically going through PTSD for most of the first season. Sure. She is now one half Terminator, one half Rosalind Russell from His Girl Friday, one half, you know, like she's just got yeah, it all going. Totally right. And she is obviously the person that we're going to be she's now the new audience avatar because we don't have another one. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of of that in Bernard just because especially in the, like there's multiple timelines going on here, as I said, in the the third timeline or the the present tense timeline, he is experiencing all this stuff sort of blindly and we get to see the world through his uh, his blurry vision. Um, But you're right. I think that one thing that's really interesting, really cool about this episode is we start to see why all these actors signed on besides the HBO paycheck. Absolutely. That especially Tandy Newton, but but also Evan Rachel Wood, who had a big part, but a literally robotic part in season one, and even James Marsden. Now you see the roles that were offered to them. And especially Tandy Newton and Tessa Thompson, they... They do something very interesting with Tessa Thompson's character. She does a complete costume change in this episode. Uh And I thought that that was very indicative of how Nolan and Joy 
we're probably like, we hear you, we hear your notes, we hear your notes about some of the um, female characters yeah. being unnecessarily uh, naked, assaulted, we mm-hmm. see, and we don't want to have these one-dimensional characters, and the fact that Tessa Thompson is not forced to go through this season wearing an evening gown. With cowboy boots. Yeah, yeah. that was cool, the cowboy boots is yeah. cool. I don't know how practical Maeve's heels are, personally, but I think, you know, the the fact that they, these characters are literally stripping or putting new clothing on shows that this show is kind kind of turning a page a little bit that we are going to get different looks at some of the familiar faces that Absolutely. we have. Absolutely. At, at the end of last season and in, in the season finale when Maeve is venturing through the labs for her first time, the entire backdrop for an extended period is uh hosts having sex in wash tubs. You know, I mean this is yeah. what's going on in the background. And this in this uh episode there's very little of that. HBO loves an orgy. God bless them. Oh, they absolutely they do. <laughs> but I think you're right that that Maeve Maeve is our protagonist. Uh Danny mentioned this to me after we watched the the premiere that um you can kind of see how they're setting they're clearly setting Maeve up as the sort of antithesis to Dolores, mm-hmm. right? She sort of has a healthy robot relationship, you know? And 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 she's uh, being motivated by love, by by decency. She's out there looking for her daughter. You know, she's not killing Sizemore. Um, yeah, she saves him. Yeah. Dolores is either acting uh, based on revenge or based on self-discovery, which is not a negative thing, but it's certainly a selfish th- or, a, a, you know, a self-centered thing. Thing. Yeah, and we can start getting into the the heady religious symbology sim- symbolism of all of this. But you have basically a, a vengeful god and a compassionate god. Yeah, you know, and you've got a god that th- if you look at these robots as godlike figures who are able to process information at a higher level, and re- you know, it doesn't seem to take much to regenerate flesh when she's doing her little surgery on Hector when Maeve is doing surgery on Hector. Uh-huh. So you have to look at these creatures as sort of like a higher p- point of evolution. One is compassionate and Maeve, and the other one in, in Dolores clearly sees the need to not only wipe away the West world, but the world itself. I mean, she starts talking about how the only way to kind of get get where they need to go is to conquer other worlds. I and mean, whether those are the other parks, which I'm sure we'll talk about, or the, you know, downtown Beijing or wherever they're going to get to next, it, I, I think that that's, that's the big tension in the show this year. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Danny, who are you rooting for? Uh, I'm rooting for Felix to die. <laughs> that's my main... <laughs> we didn't get any Felix this episode. I know. I... <laughs> we did get a lot of returns. We'll get into some of those later. I mean, pretty much everybody that you hoped would, would survive, everybody that mattered in season one except for Ford is alive in this in season two, right? Am I forgetting anybody? And Stubbs is back. That's a whole mystery that we'll get into, I'm sure, in future episodes. They left that hanging out there. Now, let's move on from the big idea to the big questions. The thing that everybody's going to be talking about is the last line of the show, where Strand asks Bernard what happened. You know, uh, shake it loose from your memory, man. Uh, And Bernard says, I believe I killed them, all of them. I killed them. There was a little bit, more than a little bit of disagreement in the office. When I listened to it the first time, I rewound it five times and was sure that he was saying he killed them. 
Um, and then I finally came around to the con- the group the group consensus, which was that it was I killed them. Uh, another one of the staffers was sure it was they killed them. Yeah, there, he, he clearly said it in a very confusing way. I don't want to linger on it too long because people listening to this will have the benefit of subtitles. Right. Um, I, so we're gonna we're gonna proceed as if he said I killed them. That's frankly a much better mystery to move forward with than than he killed them. Yeah, and I think also it's worth noting that uh, that that might be more guilt than physical cul- like actual culpability. Like it might be mm-hmm. a, more of an emotional sense sure. of like I led this, I, I allowed this to happen, rather than. I was the one who dumped all these people in a new sea that we didn't know it was there. Yeah, and we saw in the in the the sort of the very first scene, which was presumably a flashback to Arnold and Dolores having a lab debriefing, but which was certainly framed as if Dolores was the one asking the questions. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm not going to be surprised if we realize that that is a thing happening in the present tense or in the future where Dolores is trying to bring consciousness to all of the hosts. Anyway, in that first scene, Bernard says that he's scared of Dolores, of what she might become. And that might be part of um, part of his uh, emotional journey in that moment as well, where it, it, he, he, by not acting more definitively in the beginning, allowed all of this stuff to transpire. Yeah. I think that um, ultimately what it's going to come down to is, is that is the when and where of that that Dolores Bernard Arnold interrogation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that was a major framing device for the first season or these sort of uh, philosophical inquiries that are going on with Dolores at various points. But, you know, we were over the course of the season able to, able to figure out this was happening 35 years ago, this was 30 years ago, and this is current. So w- when we find, when we start to establish when this first scene is taking place, yeah. I think a lot of this will get unlocked. Well, I mean, they, they do leave that a little bit uh, hazy, but mm-hmm. overall, the the time-jumping, you know, structure of, of this episode, and presumably the rest of the season, is a lot clearer. Than yeah, we've we got a two-week sp- span that we're trying to figure out here, yeah, basically. It's, it's a yeah. very simple lockbox, you know, mm-hmm. like what what happened in this in this frame of time. Um, I mean, I guess now's as good a time as any to say the show feels radically different than season one. I mean, season one was for all of the you know death and sex and everything else that took place. It was like it was a philosophical journey, right? And yes. now we're in. I mean, they've embraced like the spaghetti western style more than they ever did in the season one when it was when it you know might have made more sense to do it. This is an action show now. I mean, we're following a we're we're following a path trying to solve a mystery. Yeah, and I think that they're playing their cards close to their vest, which is what they did in the first season. Where, yeah, Maeve is obviously this badass, but for the most part, we're not so sure how to feel about all these people. You know, and the violence is played realistically, but. I think that in such a volume that it's hard to understand the consequences in that those sure. terms particularly, but a lot of characters we don't know what Teddy's thinking right now. Yeah, you know, so it's a, and we don't know how he how he gets into the sea. Right. So I, I, you know, I I think it's it's about watching how they parcel out, and I think they bought themselves a lot of time by making these scenes feel a little bit more action packed. Like you're saying, uh-huh. they can have two or three episodes before they say, okay, we're gonna make. Dolores the big bad. Yes. And just, I mean, and just the fact that la- season one was 35 years yeah. between flashbacks and present tense yeah. and everything else. This is going to be two weeks. I mean, this is, it's a, it's a very, very contained show. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that, that just the, 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 the hone of the, of the show, the, the way that they've just sort of directed everything is really powerful. And I, and going to what you were saying about the not knowing how to feel and about Maeve being the protagonist, maybe it's just the way I watched it. But I really feel like when Maeve is mowing down humans or when she's involved in killing people, it feels 
it, it feels more functional and it doesn't feel like that. It does. I, I'm not emotionally affected by that in the way that I am when Dolores is murdering people and you feel for the people getting shot. Yes. Like, I feel like they're deliberately portraying this in a way that that Maeve is is the good. And they do or, a good job of making all the people who seem to be visiting Westworld are either red shirts or yeah. assholes. So yeah. you're not like, oh, no, not not this this other puffy guy with a tux. Like, yeah. I was really pulling for him. You know? Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, there was very little confusion about the sort of nuts and bolts of this show. We're not, there. Were, like, none of the Delos stragglers, there was never a moment where you're like, maybe that's an important player for this exactly. season. Exactly, yeah. They kept it pretty, pretty clear. Um, and also, just the big questions from last season, like, is Dolores... You know, has she like fully gained her self awareness? Like they just take it for granted that she has, and we're moving forward, yes. and it's, we're much better off that way. All right, next big question: The Man in Black, aka William, has a new game to play. Young Robert tells him, "You have to make it back out. In this game, you must find the door." Congratulations, William. This game is meant for you. The game begins where you end and ends where you began. You talked about this at the top. This is everything's in code. What do you think the Man in Black's new game is? And is he playing the same game as everybody else who's lived there? I mean, who's left there? Or is this just, is there a specific thing for him? It begins where you end, it ends where you begin. Obviously, it would suggest some sort of death and rebirth going mm-hmm. on. The thing that the Man in Black says back to young Robert is that now we have real consequences. Sure. Which That's is what he's, what he's been for sort of time. looking for the whole time. I don't want to read too much into it. He is not on the beach. Two weeks later, right. you know, and that, that that is, I think, notable only in so much as he is probably going to continue to have his own individual storyline that deviates from the larger Delos versus the, yeah. the the hosts thing. I don't know what his exit strategy is here, because I think that he's been stripped away of a lot of his emotional motivation in relationship to Dolores. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, man. I mean, like, I, I think it's a fascinating idea of what is an exit for him. Yeah. What's the, it's where, really the door to where? I mean, you're right that he's sort of separate in a literal sense from the rest of the plot line. And in a literal sense, at the, the end of last season, while the entire cast was gathered together for this gala, he was just like chilling outside with a brandy yes. or whatever. You know, like he's 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 on his own through this entire story. Danny, what do you got? Well, in terms of what Chris just said about where does those doors begin and everything is code, I mean, we can look at it literally in terms of where where did he begin as the man in black, and that's really on that homestead where he really just tormented Maeve and her daughter. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of similarities to Harry Potter with the entering the Forbidden Forest and I open at the close. Uh, but I would say that there's also obviously everything's code. I think the door internally is connected to this theme of rooms up. Op- oh, sorry, Dolores' voice. Rooms open up inside of me, and I think that that's really where this is going. And my guess would be, where do those doors leave? Well, you can open up a door to a room filled with love or a room filled with hate. Sure, vengeance yeah. or compassion. It's the same thing that we're talking about. Yeah. And listen, I mean, he, the, his his journey began uh, more. I mean, not not at the very first moment, but more or less with his love for Dolores, the mm-hmm. host Dolores, and. You know, it's not outside of the realm of comprehension that you see the direction she's taking that they, you know, might find uh, rekindled flame at yeah. some point uh, down the course of the season. We got to deal with the present tense or the two weeks later uh, timeline. We got Stubbs back. I mentioned him. But our big new character is Carl Strand. We love Carl. Carl. Uh, the question is, um, and we touched on this a little bit, is Strand the new big bad or is he just going to, is he just sort of a functionary in the show? But he definitely got... 
cast from uh, the Taken Expanded Universe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just seems like a guy who could be on either side of the Taken coin, uh, a guy with a set of skills or or a kidnapper. I'm not really sure. You're, you're right. I, what I'm really curious about in relation to Carl is I need to get my hands on a, a Delos org chart. Because <laughs> okay. um, I feel like... We've got Ford invented the game, but seemed vulnerable to getting voted out of power. Right. Ed Harris, the the man in black, largest shareholder, mm-hmm. but also seems only interested in playing the game, not actually running this company. Right. Then you have Teresa last year, who did not do well, and she was like a managing director, but I don't know who she reported to necessarily. Right. Now Charlotte is here, but Charlotte seems to be beholden to some outside force as well because she's depending on extraction based on this package delivery. Yeah. So I still think that there's a couple of other shoes to drop in the larger Delos corporate structure. And that could be, you know, this show is so successful. You have to imagine they'd love to have like a four or five season run. There's other things out there in terms of who's running Delos. And uh, so Carl, I think, is an interesting Antagonist, but I was I was fascinated that you called him the big bad of the season because I was wondering whether or not that might be a little bit of a fake out for us. That's my feeling too. I'm not speaking so much from personal experience, but you put a tall bald guy on the screen in mm-hmm. a suit, and you're you're assuming that this is going to be a villain of some sort, yeah, right. And certainly the way that he's that 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 we first meet him with him smarmily introducing himself to Bernard and then having a Native American host like literally scalped just for his not for his own pleasure but but sort of just for his own edification and then you know it, it, it we're definitely supposed to think that at the beginning also the threesome of the of Delos employees who we see in that scene him and is it Cortez was the guy who actually did the brain extraction and our girl from Get Out with the Betty Gabriel, yeah. rifle, Betty, Betty yeah. Gabriel. I mean, that's a little bit of a casting flex. All of them are not just people who have been in stuff before, but you know, it's a very, it's it's a it's a very sort of villainous look to this trio, to Absolutely. this trio, right? But I agree. I think I think it's probably misdirection. I think that I think we'll probably soon figure out that good guy Carl Strand is is uh, right here with the rest of us. Shout out to uh, Cortez for worrying about field conditions of yes. that of that brain extraction. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I guess that the, the files could have been corrupted if, or whatever. But it seemed like, did you really need a sterile environment to it's, do that? It's kind of amazing that they had the technology to read the brain, but all they had was like a dagger and a scalpel to take to like access the brain. Yeah, you know, they couldn't have had what like. Like the, the drone hosts had that little white plastic thing that they like could take the brain off brain out with or whatever. We learned a lot about technology in this show. I don't know if we learned a lot. We saw the host brain system, yeah. whatever that was. That very first scene with the the scalping and, and learning that Dolores is out there killing everybody, that was a pretty shocking moment. But why don't we use this as an opportunity to talk about what we each think is the most shocking moment? In Westworld Season 2, Episode 1. My low-key most shocking moment was when we find out that Delos has been mining the experiences mm-hmm. of guests. I felt like that was, A, incredibly prescient yeah. in terms of private data, in terms of how that's being shared and used. But it's not something that I had even considered before. And this whole idea that there are off-network hosts, that there are there are prototype hosts that aren't even built out with skin, you yeah. know, with, with, with flesh, and that they are able to record and catalog and God knows what with guest experiences Yeah, was a whole new layer to this thing. Yeah. And piggybacking off of that from the same scene, it's super low-key, 
moment, but when Bernard just casually drops that, by the way, hosts can subconsciously communicate when they're in a certain proximity, that is a game changer. Sure. Like, that was a quieter moment in the episode. That is, like, the single biggest thing that will change how Reddit talks about everything, and if there are hosts or hosts impersonating people out in the real world, like, that changes how everything kind of works in the whole universe. So we've seen that Maeve sort of has this, like, superpower to control all of the hosts, right? Maybe it's just because she's aware and they're not, and they are connected, as you say. Um, She also does a pretty good job, you know, as passing for a human. I think that it's sort of interesting. The last, you know, the last five minutes of the show was just a rolling series of uh, reveals. You know, we get... Uh, the tiger, we get the 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 lake or the sea full of bodies, and then we uh, see Teddy floating in there at the end. None of that was particularly shocking to me, maybe because it came at the point in the show where I was ready to be shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree. It's that scene in the lab with with um, with with Bernard and Charlotte where we learn that for, first of all, the host drones creep me the hell out. Everything awesome. that, everything awesome. that you guys new addition brought yeah. up. Yeah. The thing that stuck in my mind longer than anything else was trying to figure out how Bernard passed the DNA test. And maybe it's, there's a really simple explanation. I'm not supposed to care about it. But he didn't think he was going to get through that door when they walked in. You know, yeah. He had to scan his finger. He didn't. Th- he thought that the, the, the drone hosts were going to tell who he, be able to tell who he was. So do you think that that had to do more with the tell who he was part or whether it was they don't you're not a threat? Like as if there was some sort of sure. a, because because they she says to him when the drone is right behind him, she's like, he's just waiting for you to move out of the way. You're not a threat. Yeah. They can tell you're not a threat. So I was curious about what you thought that DNA part meant. I mean, obviously, this could be done away with with a, with a very simple hand wave, which is that, like, you know, Ford put some electric DNA in him and mm-hmm. he can pass. But it wouldn't be beyond the realm of comprehension for one of the mysteries this season to be about how human Bernard actually is or how much of how much of Arnold there is still left in him. Yeah, Who knows? absolutely. I mean, that's a lot to get through, and I'm glad they didn't go any further if that's the case in episode one. But as, as we see Host's Awakening, I mean, this is like their their relative level of humanity is going to be more and more of a going concern. So I think that the, the, the other big, I don't know if it was a shock per se, because this had obviously been talked about a lot as the season was coming up. Uh-huh. But that, that, it, that was a tiger. That was yeah. lying on the ground. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny, Danny. You could—I mean, you, know you have a checklist of stuff down there of, of, of important reveals and, and theories that have been put to bed this season. We'll get to that in just a sec. But I was really impressed. This—I wouldn't say this is shocking in a storytelling sense, but certainly shocking from like a showrunner sense that they hand waved the "Where in the world is Westworld" mm-hmm. thing away within the first two minutes of the yeah. show. I guess the first scene was long, but they're there on the beach. And when we meet Carl Strand, he's talking to some Chinese military officials. And there's right. a there's a warship in the background, and he's just like, you know, get these guys off of my island. We signed a you signed a waiver. Um, that to me was Nolan and Joy saying like this part, this single internet conversation is one that no one needs to have. It's a waste. It's a it's a waste of your time. The and where and when is Westworld? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that that's a total misdirection. It's a total red herring. The real conversation are the deeper philosophical questions. And this season, it's like we said, it's more. See, about- I kind of pu- I want to push back on that. A All little right, bit. Go, go. So, one of two things are true. Then, if that, so let's just say, if this is taking place in, I guess that's the South China Sea or whatever you think that is, uh-huh. then they have spent the money to recreate Death Valley or whatever, right, <laughs> on this island because mm-hmm. that that's not what China looks like, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Or we have gotten to a point in geopolitical oh, politics I like this. I like this. where China has some sort of governance over 
Southern California, Arizona, wherever that is supposed to be, Texas, like whatever you think that is. Our colleague Jason Concepcion posited on Binge Mode last week that he thought Westworld took place on a moon. I don't necessarily agree with that, but there is one line from Ford that I cannot get out of my head, which is that we, when we ran out of other species to dominate, we built this place. Yes. If it were, if we actually messed up Earth, Earth so much that humanity had to leave, that is the line we'll come back to and be like, wow, they right. were telling us this in season one. It was not on Earth. So the idea is that China or whatever future government plants a flag on a Mars. moon or something, yeah, whatever. whatever. Yeah. And that, and well, we yeah. don't, that was one soldier, you know, so we don't know. That's true. We believe him to have been speaking in Chinese. We have no yes, native Chinese speakers but, in the room right now, but— in so much as this is still going to be like a, a sort of deep philosophical show on some level, if uh, we don't need a whole season of reveals of the next Delos boss, like yeah. we don't, it, it can't just keep like China dolling, like whatever, whoever's inside. I, I think for the sa- in the same way that I think they did some course correction on some of the characters and on some of the way these the, the characters are depicted, they've also done a little bit of course correction on people are really here for that. The, the plot, like the, the maze of the plot. Yes. And they're giving us a little bit more of that and a little less of um, Shakespeare quoting monologues, although there were a fair amount of those, too. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. I mean, I think that that it's it's to the 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 benefit of the show um, that at the end of last season, when the, when there was this sort of like very low key reveal, which was. The maze doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. the actual, like the physical maze is just like it's just a symbol. It doesn't, sure. it doesn't yeah. mean anything. I think in a lot of ways that we saw them sort of get rid of that philosophical maze to start this new season. Yeah. Right. This yeah. is the, we're we're pointed we're pointed more or less in one direction now. All right, let's go to our second award of the week. Quote of the week. You mentioned Shakespeare. There are a lot of big lines in this episode. I, I had a, I have a long list of potentials. Chris, what is your quote of the week? Um, I think I'll just re, re, like echo what I said earlier, which mm-hmm. is uh, everything is code here, William. You know that more than anyone. It was young Robert talking to William. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to not. Uh, obviously, they left us with that line from Bernard, although that wasn't like the deepest quote, but it was obviously a very sort of pregnant one. Dolores had the great line right before she, uh, in the in the hanging scene where she says, you know, do you know where you are? You're in a dream. You're in my dream. The price you did you ever stop to think about your to wonder about your actions? The price you'd have to pay if there was a reckoning. That reckoning is here. That's obviously a big line. Um, for me, it was the same scene that you were talking about, Chris. But um, it's when the man in black or William says, "It's the folly of my kind." There's always a yearning for more. Yeah, and I, and I I just I I just I think that that kind of says everything about the show. I mean, that's what how we got to Westworld, right? I mean, it's the what you Danny, it's what you were talking about. We conquered everything else. We had to build something else to conquer, and that's clearly the sort of pathos that has animated the Man in Black up to this point. He yeah. seems to be back on his horse, doing you know doing his old stuff, but the fact that he has the self awareness to say that that he's that you know there there might be a a more important path than the one he's been on for the past you know, 30 years is, is, is significant. And I want to bring one thing up with his, his quest. Cause I think this second season quest is going to be unlike any that his character would have ever experienced before, because one of the reasons why he was so successful at playing the game, so to speak, is that he understood the rules. Yeah. And what the first season undoes is all the rules, like all these ideas of what Dolores's character and these hosts are allowed to do. 
you know, whether they are allowed to harm a guest, whether they are allowed yeah. to point a like fire a gun at a guest, whether they are allowed to, and with the whole the, the knife sequence in the first season, we just kind of keep going through these barriers that they had initially set up as firewalls for like not allowing any harm to come to the to the guests. Yes. And so, what is the man in black going to do in a world where the rules have changed, in a game where the rules have changed? Yeah. No, I think I mean his arc is going to be. Danny and I talked about this before, but I think it's. The degree to which he was the villain in season one tells you all you need to know that about how that arc's going to reverse itself over the course of the rest of the show yeah. or, or the rest of his character's time on the show. Um, I'm going to be really excited to see where that goes. One quick sidebar to that to that uh, folly of my kind quote. This is a little bit far afield, but I it's it, this is Westworld. We can't leave any stone unturned. Epicurus, the philosopher, uh, one of his quotes is, uh, "It is folly for man." or the folly of man is to pray to the gods for which he has the power to obtain by himself. Hmm. And then he shot the god Ford in the face. Um, <laughs> moving on. Award number three. The This Maze Wasn't Meant for You Award for the Dumbest Human. I feel like this is going to be a unanimous, unanimous decision. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. What's your pick, Chris? It's Doom Buggy Guy. Yeah. You think that there's a dune buggy waiting for you? Come on, man. Everything's am, been going wrong all day. I am so pushing back. And you got first of all, these are board members. They have cars waiting out for them all the time. So they, they've expected <laughs> that. I am so against you guys. When Dolores first makes her beautiful, like, Breaking Bad gliding over all appearance into the show, <laughs> oh, yeah. just like the galloping of music, and she's just shooting, lighting these hosts up, or sorry, the, the board members up. They're just running in a straight line. You want, you what want, are you guys doing? Zigzag, crisscross, spread out. I, I have never been chased by someone on horseback shooting at me. Yet. Yeah, this is the Brandon Stark but thing. Yeah. This is the Brandon Stark thing. Run anything but a straight line. Run a post. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I'm with you, Chris. Dune buggy guy. Yeah. The, just dude, how about shouting? Like, hey, can you help us out here? Yeah. Dude looks like a young Burt Lahr or something. And he was just like the <laughs> biggest. Like you, you just hated him the second you saw him. Uh, and and that's my pick. But I'm with you, Danny. Uh, I agree that that guy was an idiot. But that was more of a scene. That was that was a you know zigzag. That 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 was just a you know it was a beautiful portrait that was supposed to symbolize a lot of murdering that she had done. I don't know that the plot was really uh, that contingent on that scene. But this the is a good based time. in stupidity. It's true. The, 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 it, this is an interesting time. If you have anything, if you have any thoughts on this, Chris, to bring up the music cues in this episode, because this was yeah, there was no. Nirvana as played by an orchestra. You no, know, there, was, was no, there was a lot of very Dunkirky sort of sound in this, you know, the sort of droning. Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. And, uh, and there was also, well, Danny, what was the music they played with the, when the man in black was back at his? Oh, my, my, the moment when I, so I felt that season one was so much prologue, and the moment where I was like, okay, prologue is over, we're starting, is the music that used to cue the train enter into Westworld, and, you know, every time Teddy's staring at the mountains and gets off the train and walks in and gets bumped by that guy, they cued that up again in this episode, but while William was cleaning his wounds in the cabin. They took literally the welcome to Westworld music from season one while instead of a host repairing themselves, he's cleaning himself up and like, all right, this and, is your and, game. And now. grabbing his hat out of right. that out of, out of the out of the chest. Did you think that the Scott Joplin entertainer bit was supposed to mean anything? Well, I think it's clear that this is Dolores up to this point had played an entertainer, sure. right? For everybody else. I mean for for the, for all the humans, and now she was And this is what you get. Yeah, this yeah. is what you get.
I mean, probably the biggest, the biggest sort of laugh, like communal guffaw line in the history, in the entire show was like when that song queued up and then the murder begins. Yes. You know, I mean, that's just a very broad but brilliant uh, little turn, especially, you know, as set, set opposed to what we've seen it ha- it's not a, a LOL funny show. So no. to have moments like that that are a little bit at least smirking is a nice is a nice uh, respite. Absolutely, yeah. But I, I thought it was interesting that they leaned in, like I said before, they kind of leaned into the Western, right? Yeah, and they, I love and that. there's a lot more of the spaghetti Western music. As much as I love this show, the modern like alt rock songs put to strings was sort of my least favorite part of the show. I felt like because it would just be like they'd play something for like Karma Police or whatever yeah. on that piano. And I was like, this is just feels like way too self-conscious and trying to like cheat me into a, a vibe that you're not actually giving me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I very much agree with that. So obviously I know who Scott Joplin is, but maybe <laughs> if someone hypothetically on this podcast did not know who Scott Joplin is, would yeah, you explain? Yeah, I mean, he was a, I think, early 19, late, late 19th century, early 20th century ragtime pianist. He wrote the, the piece of music that we hear in the West in Westworld is The Entertainer, which was probably popularized, I think, for most people in the post-war era yeah. um, in The Sting. So uh, is just— but Yeah, we could we could do a whole 30 minutes on, like, The Sting parallels yeah. in this, too, but I, <laughs> but I think we can leave that aside. But I think—but, yeah, I think that more than anything, it's the, it's the title and the familiarity with it. I mean, it, it, it was the sort of song that, anachronism aside, is the sort of thing you would imagine hearing in the saloon. You know, it's very—it's just very sort of cheery— Welcome to the theme park music and a lot of at least that's the way it's evolved in American lore. Yes. Um, all right. Time for our reality check segment where young Danny Heifetz will float us theories, tell us what mysteries we've solved and tell us what mysteries we're opening the door to in future episodes. OK, Danny, so what you got? there is a ton to run through. But first off, we got to give shouts out to Reddit. Reddit actually called that this was going to be an island off of Asia like months and months ago. So credit to the person who came up with that. We established that there's a minimum of at least six parks. The opening credits changed. Uh, We see a host holding a baby. A domesticated horse was replaced by a a bison roaming free. The host is lowered into a clear liquid to end the credits as opposed to the white milky liquid from season one. In the beginning of both of Bernard's timelines, we see that he's mistaken for a human once by Charlotte and once by uh, the soldiers on the beach. Uh, one of the security force members chilling with Carl and Bernard, you might recognize as Betty Gabriel from Get Out. I think she's a host. Dolores says that she's no longer the farm girl, no longer Wyatt, but myself. So perhaps she needs a new name. Maybe she'll give herself a new name. The shape of the brainstem thing they pull out of the person they scalp looks a lot like a virus under a microscope. And of course, viruses need hosts. Mm-hmm. Finally, in the underground super secret lab, Bernard explains that hosts can communicate subconsciously like ants underground. This is alarming because ants are the only other species that we know of that can conduct full out warfare. Nice. Good and, catch, Danny. <laughs> and yeah, that's all I got. For can you. I can, so can I just ask a couple of like ones that we questions that we want to have answered for yes, the future? Yeah. So uh, Peter Abernathy, obviously Dolores's quote unquote father, at mm-hmm. least in one narrative. Uh, is brought up as this hugely important character because he's holding the package. Yeah, he's he is the uh, the courier, so to speak. So obviously, not only would Dolores have some, you know, whether it's real or not, a, you know, a connection to him. He's also uh, an important character in Tessa Thompson's yeah. and Charlotte Hale's narrative. So I think that he'll probably come in, in, uh, into play in a big way in the second season. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it, we, it was notable that we didn't see him at all, and he was yeah. only referred to sort of vaguely until um, they went off looking for. I mean, until Bernard set out to to figure out where he was, and he did find that he did find him. Yes, ostensibly in the mesh network, uh, and then but we we haven't seen him yet. And you know, obviously, season one, Dolores's whole narrative is her whole loop is going home and trying to save her father and failing, and now you're going to have probably she's set up to do that. Also, interesting. Um, Dolores' mother is never seen, but she is in that house every night, but mm-hmm. we never actually see her. Mm-hmm. So that there's also potential for that to come back. Yeah, I mean, I hope that we don't, I hope it's not just some big reveal about this is who Dolores' mom was. <laughs> I mean, this show does such a good job at sort of building mysteries and solving them, or it seems like it's doing that right now, that I think that, you know, we don't need another Dallas board member. We don't need to find out that, yeah. like, a lot of people in season one were wondering if Charlotte was, like, the man in black's daughter, daughter or yeah. whatever. You know, like, th- all that's sort of very unnecessary for the show that they've built. But yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, P- uh, Papa Abernathy start basically like starts the ball rolling. I mean, he's the first one on the show that says these violent delights have violent ends. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I think. The, and then and then now he's become the sort of literal MacGuffin in yeah. the show. So we'll yeah, that that'll be. Are, are there any more questions? Leading, I, I think that uh, I mean we're talking a lot about the, the. I think we've probably said the word end the most in this podcast, yeah. and the fact that Dolores says to Teddy this ends with you and me to, you know, you think in that scene she's saying it ends with you and me together. Yeah. But we're forced to ask what the end of what and what is this by the end of the episode because we're 99.9% sure that's Teddy in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So everything's happening in these two weeks. I think that the thing that I kept thinking about was um, at the end of last season, Ford says he spent, you know, he gave the host basically 35 years to learn how to defend themselves before he's yes. kind of set them free into the world. Out of that and reverie, it was a sort yeah. of repetition and tragedy, and eventually through that comes awakening. Um, but one of the things that, she, that that Dolores clearly learned, we saw this throughout last season, through all of those repetitions and all of those debriefings, was she learned how to bullshit. Yeah. Like, and, the, and you see her when she, when she, at the very beginning of this episode, when she says, like, when when Bernard or Arnold says he's worried about her and she says, why would you possibly be worried about me? Like little old me, that look on her face, it's the same look on her face when she's telling Teddy, this is going to end with you and me. And you know as she's saying that, that, you know, she's going to, she she doesn't have big plans for that guy in the future, or at least not in his prolonged existence. And I'd actually zoom out even further on that. So obviously Dolores in that, and I think Evan Rachel Wood might win an Emmy after this season, but... Obviously, Dolores in that scene really has a lot more of what we consider human quality. She's really—now, Evan Rachel Wood's really acting. Um, But in the final scene with Teddy, uh, Teddy asks her, how are you going to conquer these worlds? And she says, because I remember, I see it all now so clearly. The past, the present, the future, I know how this story ends. And I would posit to you guys, do you think Dolores is now vulnerable to some of these more human follies? Because I don't care if she has three decades of experience— I don't think she can see the future, and I think that she actually might have that fallacy of thinking she knows how things will go, and I don't think that they've evolved to that point. When Adam and Eve, you know, ate from the gar- ate from the tree of knowledge, they thought they knew everything, and then God was like, nah. Yeah, I think that—I just—I'm just, just going to take everything that Dolores says for the first few episodes with a grain of salt because I think she is signaling to us that she is playing parts. So she shows those people that she's, she's setting up to hang— all the different faces of Dolores that she can play. And we still don't, I don't think 100% understand the Wyatt component to this, the mm. death cult component sure. to this. Well, it's a really basic question that, we, that we've that we skipped over. But when she left them there, they're mm-hmm. they strung up to the tree, standing on the, you know, standing on the wooden sticks or whatever, and that presumably if they fell, they would die. 
But did she leave them there out of generosity that she didn't kill them straight up? Or was that just a more cruel way to get rid of them? I'm, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. Any, any, any ta- are we just not supposed to know the answer to that question? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the, you, we're still waiting to find out what happened to Elsie. They they do they do <laughs> sometimes like have a hold card when it comes to character deaths on this show. Yeah, I can't wait for a long season of talking about Elsie and Stubbs, um, <laughs> the two the, my two favorite characters in the show. Thank you guys both for sitting here and talking to me. Thanks, Augie, in the back. Thank all of you for listening. We'll be back here next week with episode two. Don't forget to check out TheRinger.com for a bunch of of great Westworld coverage. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Freeze all motor functions. We're out. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a -a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com. Songfinch.com.